We're in our series that when the silence was broken, we're looking at the first couple of chapters of Luke. And if you're visiting with us, we're going to be kicking right into the middle. And if you're visiting with us, just so you know, this is like a church of the drive-in church this morning. Uh, I uh, had probably spent too much time with my cast off, kind of in denial that the thing was broken and uh, it just was... more swollen, I couldn't get my shoes on this morning. So I went stormtrooper style, and we'll uh, get to drive this cool thing, and so we'll, we'll see how it, that, that goes. Um, well, glad, glad that you're here. You know, we are looking this morning at probably, I would say, one of the most dangerous texts in Scripture. And it's dangerous because it is, other than John 3.16, the most famous text that's out there. If you grew up in the church, you have come across this from your first days in the nursery. They have got uh, uh, flannel graphs with this. There's all kinds of songs with this and cartoons with this and classics with this. And on, on secular television, there are secular, secular Christmas issues with this and Christmas pageants about this and figurines and games and puzzles. And you, you got it all. And so this is really the birth of Christ. And we figure if there's one passage that we know, right, this is it. We might not know some other things in First Chronicles someplace, but we got this one down. Uh, we've heard it enough times. Well, the problem, of course, with that is familiar, familiarity can uh, cause us to just miss the real purpose as to why Luke put this in there. Well, Luke had, has a goal. This, this is not a standalone passage. It's really a part of, of his, his whole gospel. It's a part of especially these first two chapters. And it's a small part, actually, at that. You know, the, the first section, you've got the angel talking to Zechariah about Jesus, about John the Baptist coming. That's 20 verses. And then Gabriel goes and talks to Mary. That's whatever that is, I think, uh, 13 verses. And then Mary and Elizabeth hang out, another almost 20 verses. Now you've got uh, the, the angels talking to the shepherds, that's 12 verses. Jesus being dedicated at the temple, that's 20 verses. Uh, then you're going to have a section with Jesus at uh, the temple when he's a little boy. And Mary and Joseph kind of lose him. Now, that's all right, they, they found it, find him, it's okay. But, but still, that's about 12 verses. But the birth narrative of Jesus, seven verses. It's the smallest section in here. And so we, we, we need to stop and ask ourselves, why does Luke include what he includes and why does he exclude what he excludes? Because Luke is more than just a reporter just giving us historical facts. Everything he says is historical. But he's got a purpose behind what he's saying. And that purpose, let me just read this for you. Luke chapter 1. Luke is going to tell us why he's going to write this in the first place. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke is writing to this guy named Theophilus. Either one of two things about him are true. Either A, he's a skeptic. He's not so sure about this Jesus stuff. He's heard about it. He's not real sure. And Luke is saying, you've got to make a call on Jesus, but make a call out of, out of wisdom. So let me give you the information on Jesus, and then you determine who you think he was. Either that or Theophilus was a believer, but he started having some doubts. Not like us sometimes, right? But he started maybe wondering, is this really true? Or what about this? And what about that? And Luke says, you know what? I'm going to give you some information 
to build your faith, to grow you. This is the goal. This is what he's trying to get across to Theophilus. And and we're going to have a series in uh, a couple of months on this idea of how to interpret Scripture, but this is so important because God's Word is not just verses. We can't just read this and go, okay, God, it's God's Word, got it down. The cults, if I'm not mistaken, use the Bible. They use verses. God's Word is understanding why he, He gave that text, what He was trying to get across, what He was communicating. And when we get that down, you know what? We've got God's Word. And so our goal this morning is we're going to look at this very common passage and just look at it a little bit deeper. And here's our goal. We want to say, what is it that Luke meant to communicate to Theophilus? Do I understand that message? Because that will be the message of this birth narrative. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2. So we start to dig into most famous text in Scripture, at least passage. And there, I think there are three, three lessons we're going to learn out of this text that, that Luke's trying to get across. And the, the first lesson is this. And let me just give it to you in the front and then we'll unpack it. God providentially is working to accomplish his plan. Let me say that again. God providentially is working to accomplish his plan. You know what providence is, right? Providence is the hidden hand of God. Uh, We think sometimes that God works in supernatural stuff, which he does, but we think that's the only time God works. We say it here. You know, God really showed up that day. What does it mean? What do we mean by that? What do we mean? God was here. Does that infer that he wasn't here the other times? Now, God's just as much showing up in the mundane in the non-supernatural manifested stuff as he is in the supernaturally manifested stuff. Uh, let's, let me show you what I mean with that. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. The first guy's name we come across is Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar is, is a title. It's like king or pharaoh. Uh, Augustus, as well, is a title. It's one that the Roman Senate bequeathed on him. It means revered one. His real name was Octavian. Perhaps you've heard of his father, Julius Caesar. Now, Octavian was um, the first great Caesar, and some would say the greatest Caesar that ever lived. Understanding that the, the, the inheritance that Octavian had, what the Roman Empire was like when he got it, because that's really the context for Jesus' birth. The Roman Empire was, was at best a loose confederation where the different republics were vying with each other for power. They were all led by different leaders. There's definitely cold war over the entire Roman Empire. There was uh, suspicion and antagonism between the city-states. It was not a safe place to live. The whole Roman Empire would erupt in a major civil war. Octavian steps in, and the first thing he does is he eradicates all of the republic leaders. All of the, the guys who were, had their own little fiefdoms got rid of them. Went to all the city-states and he pulled down their flags and their banners and standards and got rid of those and erected the Roman banner alone. Every city-state in the Roman Empire flew the Roman flag, basically. And what this is referred to as is as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot for us because if you grew up in the states, for the most part, at least in our homeland, you haven't known anything but peace. 
You've never really worried about your home being shelled or an invading state coming in and taking you out. That's just not been part of our history. But for these folks at this time, that's all they knew. And so this idea of, of within the empire, peace, that's just kind of a new thing. And then Octavian decides he's going to build a, a transportation system between all the major city-states because he is interested in two things, in commerce, trade going throughout the empire, but also ability to move his armies around however he wants to. And so he builds this sophisticated, elaborate uh, transportation system between all the city-states. When the Greek empire left, what they left was a huge legacy because they left a one Western world language, Greek. This was the trade language. Now, if you think about right now, all of Europe into the Middle East, how many languages are spoken in that area? There's a lot of languages spoken in that area. Uh, There were back then as well, but they all spoke, generally speaking, the trade language, which was Greek. There was one language to kind of unify everybody. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, At this time as well, because there's peace going on, people's minds are not preoccupied with survival. They start thinking about literature. Literature really starts to take off. The arts take off at this point in history. Also, because of the peace, because of the, you know, you know how when you're isolated, you think your ways are superior, and what you're, but then when you start branching out, you start recognizing other ways. It's this whole diversity thing. At one level, there's, there's a, a, a degree of, of reality and truth about this. You begin to respect and appreciate others and their differences. Well, same thing here. They're respecting other people's gods and they're starting to ask themselves this whole thing of, of polytheism or their own God. Is their God really the right God? Is this really the right understanding of, of the afterlife and of the gods? These are incredible questions. And this, this is why. Galatians 4.4 4 says that when the time would, had fully come, when the time was perfect, God sent forth his son. Uh, Stephen Ambrose, has uh, World War II historian, wrote a pretty thick book. I don't know how thick. Thick book, though, uh, D-Day. And if you read this, this is just fascinating because it, it talks about the plan to launch June 6, 1944, trying to break through Hitler's Atlantic Wall. And what was involved in this? I mean, just myriads of decoys uh, intentionally leaked false information. Spies in every branch of the military throughout the entire Allied armies. You've got 11,000 airplanes on on that assault. 5,333 ships on that assault. It said that you could walk across the English Channel if you could just jump from ship to ship. It was just ships everywhere. 50,000 vehicles. 175,000 troops. It was just this massive, massively planned, sophisticated, hugely sophisticated plan for this, this one battle. This was a not an accident. This was a sophisticatedly complex plan. Never before was the world this prepped for the gospel. Without the Pax Romana, you know what? The gospel may not have ever gotten out of Jerusalem. If all the city-states are afraid of each other and they're not going to really leave town, that wasn't going to work. Without this massively transport this massive transportation system built. I mean, that allowed the pilgrims to travel with this one world language that allowed them to travel and speak to wherever they went, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. This idea that suddenly literature was taking off. Well, the gospels and Paul's epistles were now well received. This concept of, of questioning polytheism in the religion of the day. It's, it's as if men's hearts 
we're, we're, we're perfectly in tune, ready for the gospel. When the time had fully come, when all the details, all the planning, all the arrangements, I know we don't have an Octavian figurine at our manger scenes, and we probably shouldn't, he wasn't really there, but we need to have one off on the side because he made a lot of it possible. He brought a lot of it, a lot of it to bear. You, if you've got verse 4, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the house of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Joseph. This is the second time we find Joseph's name in Luke, and it's the last time we find Joseph's name in Luke. You're going to have an incident in a little bit down the road where the parents, is what Luke refers to them, uh, left Jesus. They lost, Again, they lost Jesus. Um, but then Mary is named, and she ends up becoming the spokesman for, for the team. Not, not, not Joseph. Matter of fact, not Joseph is not ascribed a single word in all of Scripture. And Luke's not, not dissing Joseph. Luke is trying to emphasize something that he's already communicated to Theophilus, and that is that Jesus' real father, biological father, it's not Joseph. Just, just so we don't get confused here, just so you keep in mind, his, his biological father, as it were, is, is God. The deity of Christ is huge. Now, Joseph brings one thing to the table, though, that's hugely important. And that is that Joseph is from the line of of David. Now, let me, and I'm going to try to say this, but I've tried multiple times, tried to work this through, and I think I get this a little bit confusing, so stay with me and try to connect the dots on this. Um, The baby will always attribute or or get his, his birthright from the father. Mary was from the line of David, but baby was not going to get his birthright from the mother, from the father. So it was a pair, even an adopted father, which is why it's very important that Joseph is from the line of David. We find in 2 Samuel 7, promise that God is making to David. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Then in, in 1 Samuel 17, so, so we know that it's coming through David, but in 1 Samuel 17 it says this. It says that David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. In other words, Bethlehem was the county seat for the Davidic line. Bethlehem was the headquarters for the Davidic line. Uh, Bethlehem was, was where they knew the Messiah was supposed to be born. Matter of fact, remember Matthew chapter 2, the Magi show up and they go, they go to talk to Herod. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, he was a governor there, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Well, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, you know, duh, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and they're quoting Micah 2, everyone knows Micah 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Everyone knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. There's a prophecy, Micah 5, 2, where it says, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Though you are least or small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will come a ruler for my, my people. This was what everybody knew. Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now, now you've got you to stick with me. You see the problem here. Mary, nine months pregnant Mary. She's got the Messiah. She's hanging out. He wants us to know. 
in Nazareth, Galilee. That's about 100 miles from Bethlehem, where the baby's supposed to be born. Now, that's, that's like a walk between here and Cleveland. I mean, that's a, that's a long walk. Uh, but Bethlehem was no Cleveland, right? Bethlehem is more like a McCain or something. It's one of these places, you, you know, there's just no reason to go there unless you're from there or something, you know. And we have no history that says that they were actually there before. It, it, was, it was just a nothing place. Sorry if you're from, sorry if you're from McCain, but it really was just a nothing sort of place. You, you didn't want to go there. Um, so, so how in the world are you going to get uh, the baby who's right now ready to be born in Mary, up in, in, in Galilee, in Nazareth, to where he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, well, you enter Octavian, who comes up with this idea that a census, that we're going to have this census, you're going to go to your hometown for taxation. Now, this was, a, this was historically a Roman thing, though this was probably the very first one that was done. And this idea about go to the town you were born in, or your family heritage, that, that's very unique here. And so Octavian makes sure they get... Now, why this is significant for me. I've wondered why Mary and Joseph, uh, what they're doing up in, in, in Nazareth. I mean, they should know the prophecy, right? I mean, they, they should know the scripture that says that Jesus is... They know that he's Messiah. The angel told them. And, and they know that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but they're hanging out in Nazareth. What are they doing? You know, if they just forgot... Did they somehow think that this wasn't for them? I, I don't know what their reasoning was, but they weren't moving on it. And, and what I like about this is I am a man filled with limitations. Man, I, I, have, a, I have a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of misunderstanding I have about Scripture. I want to interpret it right, and I study hard to interpret it right, but do I think I always nail it? Oh, well, please, forget it. Who does that? I recognize that historically I probably got junk in my past that will keep me from seeing reality sometimes. I've just got a lot of limitations. The cool thing is God is not limited to our limitations. If he needs you in a place, he will get you there. And he'll move whoever he's got. He'll move angels' wings. He'll move Caesar's decree. He'll do what he has to do to get you there. He, he is. I think Luke is saying to Theophilus, Theophilus, you need to know. That this is much bigger than meets the eye. Almighty God has moved in the heart of the most powerful man in the world to come up with a decree to get Jesus, to, to, I mean to affect the geography a thousand miles away to get Jesus where he needs to be for the birth. Now, we can't, we, please, let's not skip by this because if you, if you truly understand and accept this idea that God providentially is working to accomplish his plan, that will have massive ramifications on how we live. Let me, let me read this for you. Isaiah 46. I don't have this on the screen, but just, just, just listen to this for a second. Uh, 46 verse 8. He says, remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. God is not limited by our limitations. I, I, I schmucked up. I didn't know enough. Somebody else did this. It was accidents happen, you know. God is not limited by any of those things. 
And we can't be thinking, we just can't go through life always thinking that, that my life is subject to the whims and whims of somebody else, to viruses, to accidents, to pro- you know, God is, is upstairs wringing his hands as he looks on. No, 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 no. God is providentially working in all the details. You know, I think this is amazing because the timing of this, if in fact the decree would have gone out earlier, They would have had time to go to Bethlehem, register for taxes and get back to Nazareth in time for the baby to be born in the wrong place. If the decree would have been later, then they could have just stayed up in Nazareth, had the baby born and then went to Bethlehem. The timing was perfect. This idea of Mary going. The the, the Roman government would have been fine if Mary would have stayed back. But why would you take your wife who's nine months pregnant across the desert a hundred miles on the back of a donkey for crying out loud? Don't you know he's Jesus? You better not be messing with the Savior of the world here. But he does. Most commentators believe that the reason why is because it was a hostile environment for Mary back in Nazareth. People didn't buy the angel story. The, the, the Holy Spirit, they weren't there. Therefore, Mary was, was viewed as immoral. The baby was illegitimate. And if that's true, why Joseph brought Mary with him, God uses our pain and the hard things in life to get us where he needs us to be. Uh, God is providentially working in our lives to accomplish his plan. I'm not saying I understand everything. I'm not saying there aren't some mysteries wrapped into that. But it is from Joseph in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, uh, Esther, Jesus. It's all over scripture. God is providentially working. Now there's a second lesson that we see here. Uh, th- that is that significance is not a matter of externals. Significance is not a matter of externals. Verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All right, this is true confessions time. When we talked a couple weeks ago, we did a test, remember that? All the famous Christmas, or biblical Christmas personages, remember, and you wrote your list up? How many of y'all had the innkeeper on there, right? Innkeeper? Oh, Paul, come on. That Sunday, everybody said, yeah, I got the innkeeper. Ah. You know, there's no innkeeper listed in scripture, by the way. It's not there. There's no room in the inn. But it doesn't mean there was an innkeeper, not an innkeeper. There, you know, there are two, two words for in, in, in the New Testament. There is a, a, a word that means like a commercial inn. You know, it's like a, a residence inn, Marriott, whatever. And then there's the word that just means um, guest quarters. This is the word they use. Most probably in town size of Bethlehem, they didn't have a, a commercial inn. Uh, when we think of, of an inn, we think of a holiday inn or a residence inn or you know, Bob's Pink Cloud Motor Lodge, whatever. Uh, and this was not, 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 not the case at, at all. At best, you know, hospitality was huge in this culture, right? And if a stranger came to town, everybody in town knew what their job was. Their job is to bring him in and give him their, their, their extra bedroom. Let him sleep on the couch. And that, was, that, was the, that was the goal. And all the extra rooms in town were full. And they were filled with, with Roman people who are there for the, the census and Jewish hierarchy who were there for the census. And all the rooms were full. Perhaps there was a community center 
that was like a big barn where the, the pilgrims could roll out their, their bed pads in the top up in the loft. The bottom would be where they would, you know, park their mode of transportation, their camels or their donkeys or whatever else. And, and basically you think of a hotel that's surrounded with a parking lot. Jesus was born in the parking lot. Now, why was Jesus born in the parking lot? Why was he born in the barn? You know, there's no prophecy that I can find of that says Jesus had to be born in a barn. Is it more noble to be born in a barn than to be born in, in, in a home someplace where there's just a little more uh, you know, a sterile environment? Is it, is it more noble? No, it's not. No. Why was he born in a stable? I think what he's telling, Luke wants to tell Theophilus that from the very beginning, Jesus, his understanding of greatness has nothing to do with externals. You'll see two, two kings in this passage. And both of them, I think there's juxtaposed here. You've got uh, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, and you've got Jesus. Octavian, you know what his, his identity was? Marian inscription lets us know what all of the Roman Empire thought about Octavian. This is this Marian inscription, and I'm quoting here, okay? Um, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea. Benefactor and savior of the whole world. This was his identity. This is what typical Roman citizen would think. Yeah, that's right. He's divine. He's the son of a God. He's the savior of the whole world. He's in charge of the land and sea. He's in control of everything. That's Caesar Augustus. And you've got him. And then Theophilus also knows, though, that Gabriel came and said, Jesus is the son of the Most High. That, that, that Jesus is, is going to be called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus is the savior of the world. That, that, that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And so Theophilus is looking at, okay, two different gods here. Who is really the savior of the world? And if you think of, of where uh, Octavian is hanging out, Rome, largest, this is the capital of the world. Largest city, you know, it would be, it'd be in, wouldn't be until 1800 that another western city would reach one million people, and that would be London. Rome had a million folk. It was the main place. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are least among the clans of Judah. When Sennacherib conquered the Middle East, he listed 48, 46 cities that he conquered. Bethlehem was not one of those listed, and it's not because he didn't conquer it. It's because it was an insignificant, nothing place. Uh, if you think about the palace that Octavian had, I can only imagine. Most powerful guy in the world, probably pretty nice place. Jesus, a stable. Think of the wealth. I'm guessing Octavian had a few dollars. I'm thinking he probably did okay. He had all the riches of Rome were at his disposal. Jesus, in a little bit, a couple weeks, we'll find that when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, the law is really clear. You have to bring a, a lamb to sacrifice. But the law says, but in case, cases of extreme poverty, you can bring two little birds. Mary and Joseph, pious Mary and Joseph, they're going to keep the law. They bring two little birds. Didn't have a penny to their name. How about appearance? The way they look. I don't know how Octavian looked, but I can imagine that he probably dressed pretty nice. That the finest clothes that you could have, he was probably wearing them. I would guess that. He had the, the do thing going. I don't, I'm guessing he looked nice. How did Jesus look? We've got no pictures. But Isaiah 53, 2 lets us know that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance 
that we should desire him. There was nothing attractive about his appearance. I thought about this. If I got to make my body, what would I do? <laughs> well, you know, I'd be humble and all maybe, but, but I'm, you know, three more inches probably. I'd look a little more buff. And I'd have a, you know, the chin thing and the eyes would be the same color and the teeth would be straightened. Basically full body overhaul, right? You know, but I would be looking fine. If I got to build my own body, I would be looking okay. Jesus builds his own body. And what's it say? Nothing in his physical appearance that's attractive. I'm not so sure that he's trying to look homely as much as he's trying to tell us that significance is not an issue of externals. And this, this is so huge for us. Because what are we all about in our culture? Oh man, it's all about externals, isn't it? I mean, celebrity status. Who cares what's going on internally and all that trouble? It doesn't matter. The paparazzi's still following them. We're still intrigued. We still click on their story. We want to find out about them. We follow them, even though we might say otherwise. We're checking them out very well. We know all about them. We're going to live our life, you know, Gangnam style is what we're going to do, man. We're talking flashy and clashy and it, it's just going to be big and shiny and it's all about the right clients and the right cash and the right number of friends I've got on Facebook and, and reserved parking places and corner offices and ads. That's what it's about. And, and Luke is saying, Theophilus, you're going to need to know from the very beginning. I know who you think is the Savior of the world. But the real Savior of the world has a radically different value system. Remember when uh, uh, Samuel is going to, to, to Jesse, looking for the new king. And one of David's, David's oldest brothers shows up first. And he walks in front of him. And, and, Je- and you know, Samuel's going... This is the man. Yeah, this is the guy. Woo, this is, look at that black wavy hair and the big and strong. He's the guy. And what does God then say? The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the externals, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ah, those who follow Christ understand that this is really what spiritual warfare is about. Spiritual warfare is not this spooky doo-doo-doo. It's a battle for our mind. Whether or not we're going to worship Octavian or whether or not we're going to worship the lowly, real Savior of the world, the Son of the Most High, Jesus. Uh, and we live our lives accordingly or are supposed to. Uh, John Blanchard, uh, World War II, he was down in Florida, his home, he went to the library and pulled out a book Read the, the book, it's a nice book, but he was really intrigued by the, the notes. See, the, the previous owner had written notes in the margin. And as he read the, the notes, he was just captivated with the depth of this person and the insight uh, and their sensitivity. And you could tell from the writing, it probably was a woman. So he looked in the front of the book, he found her name, Miss Hollis Maynell. He, he tracked her down, found out she was living in New York City at the time. He, he, he wrote her. And he let her know. He said, I'm going to be shipped overseas in just a couple of weeks. But could we basically be pen pals while I'm overseas? And she agreed and they began to write uh, back and forth. And for the full 13 months he was overseas, she wrote through some very horrific situations, encouraged, and and their, their hearts were beginning to mesh. And he hadn't seen her face, but he was seeing her heart. So he wrote a, in one of his letters, he asked for a picture. And she said, no. She said, if you really care for me, how I look is irrelevant. Yeah, right, okay, okay, got it. And so they got out of the the military, came home. They they set up their very first meeting, Grand Central Station, 7 o'clock. And and they they 
they determined, she said, well, listen, you will recognize me by the big red flower I have on my lapel. I said, okay, got it. So he shows up, he's at Grand Central Station at 7 o'clock, he looks around, and people everywhere, of course, and, get, and all of a sudden he sees this gal walk by him, uh, pretty blonde gal, looks sharp, she's wearing a nice you know, uh, pale green suit, she passes him, she says, hey, sailor, coming my way. <laughs> and he forgot why he was there for just a moment, decided that yes, he was going her way, uh, took a step or two, and then just as she passed by, he noticed the big red flower, and his heart sank. He said, oh, he, that's Miss... Hollis Maynell. She was 40-something. Uh, her greasy hair pushed back behind her ears underneath that old worn hat. She's more dowdy and uh, plump would be a, a nice word to describe her. And her, her thick ankles went right into her flat-soled old shoes. And he said, oh. He kept, he kept looking back. Okay, listen, I'm, I'm at the crossroads here. Uh, but he, he realized something. He said, you know, this is not going to be love and romance. But it might be something more precious Because her heart has got me through so much overseas. And this friendship, I I not just was incredibly grateful for at one point, I'm going to be incredibly grateful for now. And so he walked up to her and he presented this blue book that was going to be his sign. And, And he said, I am Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Miss Hollis Maynell. It's a privilege to meet you. Can I take you to dinner? And the lady looked at him and she smiled and she said, Son, I have no idea what this is about. But that lady in the green suit, she begged me to wear this red flower on my lapel. And she said that if you were to ask me to dinner, I'm supposed to tell you that she's across the street at that big restaurant waiting for you. We know uh, that we have a, a propensity or tendency to chase after the externals. But when, in fact, we are, are on a quest for truth of God in all of its shabbiness according to the world standards, that's when we'll really find what we really are, are, are looking for, what we were made for. You know, there's, there's a third lesson, just, just real quick. I believe that what Luke is telling Theophilus is that Jesus' life would be marked with rejection. You know, no room in the end. No room in the end. The guest rooms are filled with the celebrities, you know, the, the big guys in town, the power brokers who are there for the census, they got them. But, but Jesus, see, people don't have time or room for Jesus. And Luke is letting Theophilus know, from the very beginning, Theophilus, you need to know that folk do not have time for Jesus. They don't have room for him. They got room for all the other stuff, but they don't have room for him. It was going to be a, a short time after this that Herod puts a contract out on Jesus, Right? Uh, the, the soldiers come to Bethlehem to kill the babies. And before Jesus can even walk, he's on the run. And then throughout Jesus' life, it says in John 1.11 that he goes to his own, but his own do what? They don't receive him. And, and then, then at his trial, remember this? Pilate brings Jesus out and says, Behold, you're king. And what do the people say? This is amazing to me. They say, We have no king but Octavian, but Caesar. We've chosen, we've got this Jesus, but we, we've chosen Octavian. We have no king but him. And Luke here is, again, he's not just reporting. He, he's, he is foreshadowing Christ's ministry and Christ's death. The next time Jesus is going to be wrapped in swallowing clothes, he's mummified. The, the, he came into the world in a borrowed stable. He's going to go out of the world in a borrowed tomb. 
And, and Luke is saying, Theophilus, make sure you understand on the front end that, that, that following Jesus is not the gingham style way. Okay? It, is, it, is, it is the way of rejection because, you know, if they rejected him, that's pretty much what you can count on. That's, that's, that's the promise. The cool thing with this thing, and as we look at this passage, we've got to know that Jesus embraced his rejection because he was rejected for us. And this would start to dawn on Theophilus, especially as they get a little bit farther down the road. Let me read for you, though. I'm going to close with this. Let me, let me read for you. Just, just listen. Close your Bible. Sit back. Listen to this. But listen to why Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus was on the scene, talking about Jesus, talks about why he was rejected and why he embraced his rejection. He says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We dis- he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silence, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what Christ's coming was going to do. That's why he embraced the rejection for us, for Theophilus and for us.